Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Colosseum Toibin, blessed feast of the Coptic New Year, the feast of the Nehruz. I always like to start a discussion with the context of the event that we're in. So today we celebrate and we are celebrating the Coptic New Year, the so-called Feast of the Nehruz. Before talking about the spiritual side, which of course is the most important part, what does the word Nehruz mean? Where do we get the word Nehruz? Some of you may have heard this, some of you may have learned it in Sunday school. It's actually not an Egyptian word, it's not an Arabic word. It's not even a Coptic word. It's a Persian word. It means river, or rivers, or waters, because that's when the Persians celebrated their new year. If you were paying attention, and I encourage you to pay attention to the hymns throughout the rest of this liturgy, when the deacons and when the congregation recite the same uh, words, is mo epi eklom rompi hitentik met choice, ni aro'u, ni aro'u, and Nehruz have the same root, and ni aro'u means the waters, bless the crown of this year, O Lord, according to your goodness, the rivers, the springs, the herbs, and so on and so forth. So Nehruz means the waters, or the rising of the waters, and we get that from the Persian history. But also it commemorates a historic event, and you heard it mentioned in the Synaxarium earlier, that upon ascending to the throne, Emperor Diocletian decided to wipe out Christianity. Emperor Diocletian decided to wipe out Christianity. And during his reign, during his time as emperor, the church, and particularly the Coptic church, saw an unprecedented amount of martyrdom. Martyrs were killed in the thousands and the hundreds of thousands, maybe even more. So the church commemorates his elevation, his rise to the throne, Diocletian's rise to the throne, as the beginning of the Coptic New Year. Because it is that time, it is the, it is the death of the martyrs, it is the, the, um, the will of the martyrs, it is the commitment of the martyrs to not relinquish their faith that defines our faith. You know, when we look at any calendar, and historically, if, if you look at old calendars, you hear B.C. and A.D., although nowadays they're trying to teach the kids it's called B.C.E. Um, and C.E. I prefer B.C. and A.D. B.C., we all know, means before Christ. If somebody says, oh, this happened in the year, the pyramids were built in the year, I don't know, 3000 B.C., before Christ. What does A.D. stand for? A lot of people think it means after death. It doesn't mean after death. It's actually a Latin word. Anno Domini. Anno means annual or comes from annual. And Domini means Lord. The year or the day of the Lord. So that point in history when Christ was born divides time from before Christ and the year of the Lord. In the Coptic tradition, we don't use B.C. And we don't use A.D. Does anybody know what we use? A.M., Anno, meaning annual, Martyrum, Martyrs, the year of the martyrs. And what Coptic year are we in today? What Coptic year did we just begin? Any of the Sunday school kids know? 
1739. And if you want to know what year it is, although it's a little tricky sometimes during the year because the regular calendar, the January, February calendar, and the Coptic calendar don't line up exactly, you add 284 or you subtract 284 from the year that we're in, 2022 MSLN, it will take you to the Coptic year. It, there's a couple of months where it doesn't fit exactly until the years line up. Enough about the history and the context. <coughs> what is the spiritual significance? Why does the church make a big deal about it? Why do we celebrate today with joyful hymns? What's the, what's the spiritual significance of a new year? Well, for the most part, I think most of you know the answer. It's a new beginning. We end one chapter, we begin a new chapter. And that's true. But there's something relatively unique about it, if you look at it from the spiritual perspective. What did all the martyrs who are, whose relics are in front of us here and whose icons surround us, what did they do that, that was so unique? What made them so important that the church mentions them, if you pay attention to the commemoration of the saints, right after the apostles and the patriarchs and so forth, the martyrs are right there at the beginning. And they're so important that we define our calendar according to their name, the year of the martyrs, A.M. What did they do that was so unique? They shed their blood, yes, but you don't shed your blood accidentally. Usually, in the case of the martyrs, there was something behind it. It is said that some of these martyrs actually would rush to towns and villages and cities where persecution was, being, uh, was, was there so that they could voluntarily shed their blood. They wanted to be counted among the martyrs. And to this day, to this day in Egypt and around the world, there are Christian martyrs, many of which, of course, we, we, uh, we have in our own church. So what was their focus? They did something that many of us struggle with, keeping their focus on heaven, keeping their focus on the eternal. That was the motivation. That's what was inside their heart. Do we commemorate them because just because they shed their blood? Well, yes. But in the eyes of God, what's more important, what was the motivation to shed their blood? So they can say, oh, I'm going to shed my blood so that my great-grandchildren someday will say that their great-grandfather was a martyr? No. Their motivation was heaven. Their focus was eternal. Many of us, I would say probably most of us, if not all of us, struggle with this, keeping our focus on the heavenly. It's very easy to be distracted in the world that we live in, especially, especially in Western society. And with every passing generation, I think it's becoming harder and harder. If you were paying attention in the reading of the Catholic epistle, St. John says something very interesting. And it's a little bit conflicting. I, I, I'll, I'll read it for you. It's just a couple of sentences here. <laughs> it's from the first epistle of St. John, chapter 2. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. I write no new commandment. In the very next paragraph, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him because of the darkness is passing away. So the first sentence, I'm not telling you anything new. 
The next paragraph, I'm going to tell you something new. What's he trying to tell us? What is St. John trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that we've always known how to keep our focus on heaven. You know, when you talk about a new year, what's the first thing that comes to mind about changing your life? It's called a resolution, a new year's resolution. Whether it's the secular calendar, 2022, 2023, or the Coptic count, a new year's resolution, a recharge, a renewal. That implies that we're leaving something and doing something different. I like to use the word as every navigation or GPS says in your car, recalculating. It's a recalculation. The navigation already knows my destination. I plugged it in an hour ago or 20 minutes ago before I left my house. But because I made a wrong turn, it automatically recalculates and says, recalculating, it's going to bring me back. I'm not teaching the navigation a new destination. I'm not giving the, des the, the GPS a new input. It's the same input. And the same holds true with us. We've always known how to get to heaven. We've always known, and the Old Testament taught us this, and the New Testament was fulfilled in that keeping our focus in heaven, keeping our focus eternal is the way. When we deviate, we don't rewrite the directions. We just recalculate. And in the closing of this epistle, at the end of this epistle, St. John highlights three very important categories. And I just want to focus for a couple of minutes on those categories before we finish. He says that there are three categories that are responsible for things that distract us from heaven, from the eternal. Because he said they are not of the Father. And if you were paying attention, you would have heard him say it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's in this epistle, chapter, uh, verse 16. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The martyrs were able to overcome that. We commemorate them and we immortalize their lives and their legacy and their teachings and, their, and the lessons we learn from them because they were over, able to overcome the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What is the lust of the eyes? What is the lust of the eyes? It means everything materialistic. Our eye always goes, our tendency is always to go to the materialistic, to the expensive, to the shiny, to the fancy, to the glorious, to the unique, to the rare. That's what the lust of the eyes is. You know, I heard it once said, we could, um, if, you're, if you're living on the first floor of a building, of your house, let's say, and you look outside your window, and there is a one-of-a-kind, I don't know, Ferrari or whatever fancy car you want to name. It's beautiful. You could see it. It's shining. It's brand new. It has all these bells and whistles. Because you're there on the ground floor, you see it right out your window. Now go up into a building that's about 10 stories high and look down. Will you still be able to tell it's the same fancy car? Maybe if your vision is good. Yeah, you'll see that it's the same model car. It's fancy, it's shiny, and so forth. Now go to the top of the Empire State Building and look down on the traffic. And if somebody says to you that car over there is the same car that was in front of your house a couple of weeks ago, 
Will you be able to tell? Maybe, if it's a color that highlight, that's red or yellow or something. Otherwise, it just looks like some dots moving around. Now go into an airplane and fly over some highways. And if somebody, if the captain says, if you look out your window, you'll see that same car on the highway there. You're lucky if you see anything. Maybe the roads. The point is, if our vision is always heavenly, if we elevate ourselves more yani, towards heaven, towards the eternal, then the material becomes less and less impressive to us. It means less and less. The lust of the eye is that challenge that St. John is talking about, where we are so involved, so engrossed, so captivated by what society provides us. The fanciest this and the newest this, and honestly, in this society, and it doesn't even have to be in the Western society anymore, it's all over the world, it's a great, a huge source of distraction from the eternal and from the heavenly. <coughs> Excuse me. What about the lust of the flesh? He says, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of, of the flesh is the lust of the flesh. Being tempted, being tempted by passions, being tempted by desires, being tempted by the opposite gender, being tempted by all those things. And again, society, Western society especially, it's everywhere. You know, I remember when the internet, I'm not going to say how old I am, but I remember when the internet came out, most of the kids here are like, what do you mean it came out? Wasn't it always here? No, the internet was not always here. But when the internet came out, they were talking about, you know, how the internet could be a source of pornography and source of lustful images and, and, and discussions and things like that. You don't have to go to the internet anymore. Just turn on the television. It's on every channel. The world is full and it's another source of distraction. How can I be focused on that and simultaneously focused on God? How can I be focused on the earthly lustful things and at the same time be focused on the heavenly eternal things? So that's why St. John lists it as a second category. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And thirdly, and probably the most subtle, is the pride of life. What is the pride of life? The pride of life is exactly what it says. Being prideful. Being prideful and thinking that I'm above another person. Or I have things that are better than that person. Or I have these gifts or these rules don't apply to me, or I'm too old to be taught how to do things, etc., etc., etc. And it's not just in church, it's not just at home, it's not just at work, it's inside of us. And that's why he calls it the pride of life. You, you're, you define your life as more important than it actually is. You know, the definition of humility is not thinking less about yourself. The definition of humility is thinking about yourself less. Do you see the subtle difference? Humility is not thinking less about yourself. I'm evil, I'm horrible, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm lost, uh, I, I'm a failure. No, that's not humility. Humility is thinking about yourself less, putting others above you. And our Lord was the per perfect example for that. And when he washed the disciples' feet, what better example could we have had? So the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are the three categories that the martyrs were able to overcome, 
that the martyrs were able to say, no, my focus is on the heavenly. My focus is on the eternal. I'm not going to let the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life distract me. My motivation is to live for Christ and to die for Christ, if necessary, as St. Paul says. So the feast that we're celebrating today has a historical significance, yes. But for each and every one of us, it is a recalculation. It is a GPS or a navigational spiritual recalculation. Am I living my life navigated towards the destination of heaven? Or am I constantly being distracted and losing my direction by following the lust of the eyes, by following the lust of the flesh, and by following the pride of life? May God give us the determination, the, det the, the focus, and the desire to follow the example of countless of martyrs who have led us, and glory be to God forever. Amen.